from WOUB News, you're listening to The Outlet, where campus meets community. I'm Anna Hoffman. And I'm Maddie Young. Welcome back. Each week on The Outlet, we bring you stories from the Athens and Ohio University communities. The Athens Race for the Cure took place last week. Hear all about the group of women who found strength through the race. So I, I wasn't sure, you know, how it was going to be, but it's really festive. It's a celebration of of these wonderful women and, um, you know, their battles and, and the fact that so many come out victorious and um, celebrating those who have been lost, um, just celebrating their lives. And Caitlin Coolidge tells us about what goes on into making Honey for the Heart such a huge success. It's all coming up right here on The Outlet. Stay with us. Back again for the sixth year is the Honey for the Heart Halloween Parade. The outlet's Caitlin Coolidge takes us behind the scenes to see what goes on in the making of this annual celebration. Music fills the room as students and community members construct human-sized butterflies a 20-foot flamingo, and insect antennas in Baker University Center's Trisolini Gallery. (laughs) That's parade coordinator Patty Mitchell. She's laughing as she helps a student try on a puppet costume that looks like a bird. She's helping students construct costumes and puppets for the 6th annual Honey for the Heart Parade. Patty says up to 1,500 people help prepare for the parade, and the numbers keep growing every year. Preparations for the parade are happening at three different locations, Trislini Gallery, Passionworks Studios, and Central Venue. Mitchell says the parade has helped bridge the gap between the Athens community and the university. This is, this is one of the things that we do is have uh, community and university involvement and just partner together and build um, on each other's uh, assets and so um, we want to just create honey for everybody's heart and the whole point of it is for spectacle and joy, nothing more. The parade is funded by Arts for Ohio and Ohio University Learning Communities and the puppets are made from repurposed materials and donations from the Athens community. Passion Flower Coordinator at Passionwork Studios, Mallory Valentor, says the parade theme this year is Things with Wings. So I've been experimenting with birds personally, trying to see how I can get those to look, not just like a puppet on a stick kind of a thing, but actual movement with um, interesting human interactions. Valentor can't help but smile as she describes past parades she's seen. She says it's more than just a parade. It's like magic. It's uh, larger than you would ever expect. You hear parade, and I think a lot of people are like, oh, floats and those sort of things. It's, it's so much more. Um, you're literally looking up to the sky at like how big these things are. Patty agrees that the parade has this magical quality and that it reflects the quirky culture of Athens. I think it creates visual evidence of the spirit of the community. The people are like, I love living in Athens, man, why? Uh, people can say, this is why. Like, this is one of the, the examples. Look at Honey for the Heart. This little town in Athens in southeast Ohio. Look what we're doing. Mitchell says volunteers are welcome to help build puppets and costumes for the parade from 10 to 6, Monday through Friday, 
in Trislini Gallery in Baker Center, and at Passionwork Studios. All donations for the parade can be dropped off in Trislini Gallery. The parade will begin at 6 o'clock in the evening on October 28th, and if you're interested in being part of the parade, Mitchell says you can meet between 4.30 and 5 o'clock on Fern Street, where costumes, puppets, and masks will be provided. With six years in the books, Honey for the Heart has already become a staple event in Athens. The parade leaves its spectators in awe as people from both the community and university come together to display their towering puppets and whimsical costumes they help design. For The Outlet, I'm Caitlin Coolidge. Ohio University has been known by students as a place that is welcoming to all, but there's always room to grow and learn. The concepts of the LGBT community are confusing topics to a lot of people. Taylor Brooke explores the safe zone training that the LGBT Center at Ohio University offers. Ask those questions that might be problematic out in reality. We'll tell you that they're problematic so you don't ask them, but we will also answer them here. This is Leanne Bouchard. She is a senior at Ohio University and also a Safe Zone training facilitator. It's a Sunday night and she is standing at the front of a classroom in Bentley Hall, speaking to members of Black Sheep Improv. She's telling them that it's okay if they feel out of their comfort zones and to not be shy about asking questions. Safe Zones, or as we like to call it, the purification of all things. Safe Zone is a training program aimed at educating people about gender and sexual orientation. It's offered through Ohio University's LGBT Center. The training has been around for a few years, but this year, the LGBT Center has made the trainings mobile. The LGBT Safe Zone training team travels to classrooms and groups in the community, increasing their outreach. The main goal of the trainings is to create safer spaces for people to be who they are. Director of the LGBT Center, Delphine Bautista, says while a lot has been done institutionally, there is still a lot of room for improvement with making the campus more inclusive. Where I think we are at the moment is we sort of know what to do with gay and lesbian folk. Bisexuals no one understands, and trans folk just aren't on the radar, especially trans folk who don't live within a binary. Bautista uses they, them pronouns. Bautista says that many people on campus don't know how to handle certain aspects of the LGBT community. If you're Laverne Cox, if you're Caitlyn Jenner, the university sort of knows what to do with you, but if you're genderqueer or gender fluid or just are not boxable, no one knows how to support, no one knows how to affirm, and so I think that is an area of a lot of growth. Nine different Safe Zone trainings are available through the center, with the most popular being Safe Zone 101. Each training focuses in on a different aspect of the LGBT community, such as religion and sexuality, bisexuality and pansexuality, and training for healthcare professionals. Most of the workshop participants learn the basics of LGBT identities and discuss ways to be good allies. LGBT Center social work intern, Leanne Bouchard, is part of the Safe Zone facilitator team and says it's important to bring the conversations about LGBTQ issues to a wider audience. I think it's a really good way to bring like interaction as well as awareness into a lot of different aspects of the community and of the campus. Because like not we don't talk about it a lot on campus unless you're within a safe zone or you're within the LGBT center. So it's something it's a way to bring it outside of the center and still have conversations about it. And those conversations, Bautista says, are having an impact. 
we've seen people catch themselves. We've seen people uh, be mindful of pronouns. Uh, and if someone is mispronounced, or in my case, if they use he instead of them or they, they will catch it and be like, oh, I'm so sorry, and understand why they're apologizing. And while the trainings are by no means the solution to building an inclusive culture, they are a starting point for people to learn more about each other. For The Outlet, I'm Taylor Brock. October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and Susan G. Coleman's race for the cure was held on October 15th. Our reporter, Maddie Young, attended the event and saw how the race affected those living with the disease. It's a dreary Sunday morning in Athens. Gray clouds roll over Peden Stadium. It looks like it may rain any minute. But below those gray skies is an explosion of pink. Pink hair, pink tutus, pink shirts. In the sea of pink, people are smiling, cheering, and dancing. There's an energetic crowd surrounding a woman in a survivor shirt. Meet Jean Scott. It's her first time taking part in the Susan G. Comins Race for the Cure event. A poster that says Jean's Bosom Buddies is being held. Jean Scott was diagnosed with breast cancer a few months ago. Well, it's this is a very, very touching day for me. I'm currently going through chemo at this very time. I was diagnosed uh, with breast cancer in May, so this is very fresh, very new. And I actually haven't been out of the house very much because of my, um, my low immunity system and my friends and my uh, kids and soccer kids and soccer community called and said they wanted to come do this for me. So um, I'm incredibly touched by this today. One in eight women will develop breast cancer at some point in her life, according to Athens Cancer Center. In southeast Ohio, an estimated 1,900 women will be diagnosed with breast cancer this year, according to Athens Race for the Cures website. This disease affects so many people each year, and yet it can sometimes be an isolating experience for the person going through it. The Race for the Cure hopes to combat those feelings of loneliness. I've met people, it's very supportive. I'm meeting people that are survivors that I was not aware were survivors. And that is the, that's the really, really neat thing because when you're going through the treatments, when you're in the thick of it, you feel very alone and very isolated from other people. And then when you come out to events or through Susan G. Komen events and you see other survivors, it gives you hope and you realize you're not alone in this. Not only does Jean have support from fellow survivors, but from her bosom buddies as well. The team was started by one of Jean's friends, Lindsay Shaler. Uh, just the women that I know and love, and they've gone through this battle, and I just wanted to show them support and um, celebrate and make something that's not so fun kind of fun. The team of bosom buddies is made up of 11 people. Well, well, we've got soccer moms, lots of soccer moms here, and lots of soccer kids here with me. Um, my son is here. He's my biggest supporter. He's 14, and um, all of his friends are here painting their hair pink. So what more can you ask for, you know? Lindsay didn't know what to expect coming to this event for the first time. 
but in the end was glad she came. I wasn't sure what the atmosphere would be like because it is, it's really hard and it's really emotional. And um, so I, I wasn't sure, you know, how it was gonna be, but it's really festive. It's a celebration of, of these wonderful women and, um, you know, their battles and, and the fact that so many come out victorious and um, celebrating those who have been lost. Um, just celebrating their lives and, and it's really, it's very upbeat. Jean and her bosom buddies finished the race strong. They all crossed the finish line together with a cheering crowd waiting for them at the end. For the outlet, I'm Maddie Young. Ohio is a leader in overdose deaths in the U.S. An author about the opioid epidemic visited Athens County last week to talk to students and residents. But when people started to tell their stories, he wasn't the focus anymore. Lauren Ramoser has more. 16,971. This is the number of people who died of a drug overdose in Ohio from 2010 to 2016. Sam Quinones, journalist and author of the best-selling book Dreamland, The True Tale of America's Opiate Epidemic, says that this is the biggest heroin problem the U.S. ever has had. We did not have heroin problems to the extent we have today by any stretch of the imagination. Never really in the history of this country, even when heroin was popular in the 70s or in the 50s or in the 20s, did we ever have the heroin problem we have today because of this pain revolution that was really wrought by pain specialists and pharmaceutical companies together, working together. Dreamland is a chronicle of the opioid epidemic, which focuses on different aspects of the issue, such as where the specific black tar heroin comes from. Quinones lived in Mexico for 10 years and got inside information on how traffickers deliver heroin in the U.S. He says it works like a pizza delivery. During a discussion at Nelsonville York High School, community members had the chance to talk to the author. Jennifer Barnhart is a mother and was an addict for almost 16 years. Her story is typical for how most addictions start. And then uh, I got hurt at work and they gave me pain pills and it numbed everything and made everything feel better. It changed, it changed who I was. For two years I was like a functioning addict. I got work comp, so I didn't have to work. And then, um, you know, after they took my pills, I struggled. I bought pills on the street, you know, and then I turned to heroin one day. This guy was like, I don't have any pills, but I have something better. And when I put that drug in me, it changed everything about me. The pills had already become addiction, but the heroin become a severe addiction. The effects of it are widespread across the country. Not only big cities are affected, but people living in the countryside, where there's hardly any infrastructure of treatment, as the audience in Nelsonville criticizes. We're mothers, we're daughters, we're brothers, we're uncles, we're aunts. You know, we're sons. That's who we are. We're not those people that are, you know, junkies and homeless and worth nothing. We're that way because the addiction has brought us there. That's not who we are. For 17 months, I've been clean. For 17 months. The audience stands to give Jennifer Barnhart a standing ovation. It shows how much support she has within the community. According to an analysis from the Columbus Dispatch, overdose death by not married people increased by 242% since 2010. 
This supports Kenyon's speech, who repeatedly says how isolating heroin addiction is. And according to him, overcoming isolation is the only solution we have right now. Well, I would say that I've seen one thing overall that you see repeated over and over, and that is communities understanding that isolation is how this happened, and that only by the only way to combat it is to bring all the talent that you have in a county, or as much of the talent as you possibly can, in a county together to to discuss. There is not an easy way to fix this epidemic, as Kenyanis tells his audience. He points out that it all started because society was looking for one solution to fix pain. People turned to painkillers. So we should recognize that one solution might not work, but community standing together could be a start. For the outlet, I'm Lauren Ramosa. Communities around the country are suffering from a lack of the necessary fruit and vegetables they need, so-called food deserts. Benton County is one of those places, but with the first grocery store opening in four years coming to the area, things are about to change. WUB's Susan Tebbin has more. At a small office in the community center of Vinton County, Ohio, Rhoda Toon Price rattles off the events happening for the county's senior citizens group. Hey, we're ha we're having our chicken noodle dinner tomorrow. We're, hey, they're homemade noodles. Oh. They're making them today, and they're homemade. The small-statured woman doesn't like recognition, but she is credited by many in this area for helping bring about the only grocery store in the county, being built just past the only stoplight in the county. The 12,000-square-foot Campbell's Market in the county seat of MacArthur will bring fresh fruits, vegetables, and meats that would otherwise be an hour's round-trip drive in the majority rural area. It will also bring jobs to an area with an 8.5% unemployment rate, according to state numbers. For Price, the fight for a grocery store in her county came down to a single banana, a banana she brought to a gathering of the Healthy Food Financing Initiative at the State House in Columbus. She told the audience of state legislators and food access advocates about the four years the county has been without a grocery store and the 150,000 miles volunteers traveled in 2016 to take Vinton County senior citizens to grocery stores in adjacent counties. And then she asked them, How would you like to travel 10 miles one way and I whip this banana out to buy one of these? Or would you rather stay home and take potassium tablets? Well, I got a snicker out of the group. Campbell's market owner Rick Campbell said the project would not have broken ground without the $1.5 million in grants and loans they received from the Healthy Food Finance Initiative. Without their commitment, uh, with their grant monies and their, their funding, we wouldn't be able to do it. The initiative is administered by the Finance Fund Capital Corporation, who gives out the grants and loans for healthy food access-related policy matters, according to Ohio's Department of Job and Family Services. These initiatives are happening across the country, led in part by an organization called the Food Trust. The agency works with the people of Vinton County and the rest of the 30 million the United States Department of Agriculture says are underserved by supermarkets and other healthy food retailers. Caroline Harries, associate director of the Food Trust, said rural areas are somewhat unique in their lack of access to fresh food. Well, I think in rural areas it's counterintuitive that, you know, often they're surrounded by farmland, but um, that production goes elsewhere, and so it's not intuitive that there might be um, not a a source of fresh produce in a rural community. As a Vinton County resident himself, County Commissioner Jim Satori knows the opportunity brought by Campbell's Market is one many around the country take for granted. My wife made a comment the other night. She said, you know, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be so nice for me to say, hey, on your way home, stop by the store and 
and I'll be able to get a I'll be able to get a fresh steak or a pound of hamburger or a loaf of bread or a package of Twinkies, but I won't tell her about that. Reporting for WOUB News, I'm Susan Tebbin. The grocery store will open tomorrow, October 25th. You can find full coverage on our website at woub.org. That's it for our show this week. Thanks for joining us. The outlet is co-produced and co-hosted this week by me, Maddie Young, and Anna Hoffman. We're edited by Atish Badia, Susan Tebbin, and Allison Hunter. Adam Rich is our technical assistant. Our theme music is performed by Ryan Gabos. Subscribe to The Outlet on SoundCloud and iTunes or find us online at woub.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at outlet underscore woub. We'll be back next week with more stories from the Athens and Ohio University communities. Thanks for listening.